Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Peach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Peach State Pandemonium. Good evening, and welcome to Peach State Pandemonium for Thursday, March 14th, 2019. This is Michael Norris, and so far I've got one of my co-hosts with me, Bobby Simmons. Hopefully uh, Jerry will be calling in here shortly. Uh, We're going to be joined uh, here in about 15, 20 minutes uh, by Minnesota author and historian George Shire. uh, He was very close friends with uh, Dick Byer and... Larry Hennig, so we're gonna we're gonna discuss their careers and everything. And you guys are gonna have to forgive me; my voice is gonna fade in and out. It's I've got a scratchy throat. And I'm sipping on ice water to try and keep it keep it lubricated, but I don't know how long that'll do. But <laughs> anyway, uh, um, what's it been? Six weeks since we were on, and uh, we, yeah, we were planning so. on we, uh, tonight talking about the uh, mobile reunion, but that didn't come off. So uh, we, uh, don't know uh, the uh, yeah the, the the racetrack is still in limbo. For those of you that uh, that haven't heard or didn't know, uh, uh, it's it's under lease agreement still, and uh, it, it's it still has not been sold. But it is under a lease, and uh, it was just uh, I think there was probably some insurance issues and 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 other other issues about you know having a group in there when somebody else is actually using the the racetrack facility. So yeah, eh, maybe next year. That makes sense. So. Now, when is uh, when is CAC? CAC is the. 29th and 30th of April and the 1st of May or the 30th, okay. right there at the end of the first of the month. So it's, I don't remember the exact days or I don't have it in front of me, but it's, uh, we're, uh, uh, my little traveling party. We, we make a vacation out of it. We'll be leaving Atlanta on the, on Easter Sunday. As soon as morning worship is over, we'll be leaving, uh, Going cross country, we're going to spend four or five days seeing the sights uh, across the middle of the country, and then we'll be in Vegas that Friday night. So we get there around the twenty, I guess that's the twenty sixth, twenty seventh, and we'll be there for five days. Well, I could afford it, and I I could get around better. I'd have you guys just drop me off in New Orleans. That's a, that's the two weekends of Jazz Fest, sir. We don't come nowhere near New Orleans. <laughs> We could drop uh, yeah, we could you drop know. you off in St. Louis and you could float down the river. <laughs> <laughs> we could actually drop you off in Memphis even, and that'd be a little closer to floating down the river. That'd be a little closer. Gotta yeah, I'm a ride on the riverboat, I guess. Uh, <laughs> after seeing the weather yesterday, I'm hoping uh, uh, Mother Nature is getting this last little belch out of her system. Uh, I could not believe it. They said that uh, uh, the. the the roads that that it was talking about that I was familiar with that I've been on, they said that uh, 
from Wall, South Dakota. Wall is a it's it's a it's a huge tourist trap. It's an old western town that has been revamped. It has a uh, it's got a hardware store and a general store and a and a, and a pharmacy and, and with a fountain and it's just a it's a very we stopped there at a uh, uh, got a Charlie Smith had to buy a T-shirt for his son-in-law at a Harley Davidson store there. But anyway, we they said and walled walled the Rapid City is probably oh I don't know 150 miles maybe, and then from Rapid City to the border of Wyoming is another maybe 50 55 miles. They said from from Wall, South Dakota, to the Wyoming border, I-90 was completely shut down. Gee, my uh, they said that uh, there was a Colorado, a friend of mine that I used to work with, uh, sent me a text this morning and said she got two feet of snow yesterday in Colorado Springs. Hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a mess out there. All the interstates, all the major roads are closed. I read where just in Colorado alone there was 1,100 people stranded in their vehicles and they had activated the national guard to try to rescue people so it's it's a mess out there with snow unbelievable i'm sure i'm sure george can tell us what the weather's like in minnesota which they have i think they have i think they're on the front end of that thing too probably I see posts. Minnesota. Dark. I've seen pictures of Minnesota and everything, and I know it's beautiful and all that up that way is beautiful. I've been to <clears throat> Wyoming, uh, and when I was in Wyoming, I was in Wyoming in June, and I think the high was like sixty-one, sixty-two degrees. I didn't <laughs> see any snow or anything except for when I went up in the mountains. We went up in the Tetons, <clears throat> and um, we saw some snow there, and. and we went horseback riding up in the, the foothills of the Tetons, and that was that was fun. Except they told you to watch out for badgers. And I've never, I've, luckily, I've never seen a live badger in my life, and don't plan on it. So, well, I was, I was, I've been to Minnesota twice. Well, I've actually been more than that. I've been several times, but I spent a couple of weeks up there, a week at different times, when my grandson was there with his for the stem cell transplant, but. Uh, uh, Seen some snow showers, but I've never was up there when it actually got crazy. But the first time I ever flew in, for those that are familiar with Georgia Championship Wrestling, we did a calendar, and I don't remember the year. Uh, we did the calendar that we sold on TV that had the pictures of the guys, and it had their you know birth dates and different things on it. Well, Brown and Bigelow, which is the largest cal- calendar manufacturing company in the world, is in St. Paul, and... Uh, the first time I ever went up there, I flew into Minneapolis, and at the time, the airport, this was before they enlarged it, uh, all the parking for that airport was underground, so when I landed, uh, you know, snow was hubcap deep on a Ferris wheel, and I had never seen that much snow in my life. It, it's the day, I flew in there the day that if you go back and look, you can find it probably somewhere, the, the, the Metrodome, the stadium up there, part of it caved in because of so much snow on top of it. Mm-hmm. The pilot actually coming into in the land, we were able to look out the window and see it. And, uh, I mean, it was awful. And the guy there picked me up. He said he'd never missed a day because of snow, missed, you know, work. I told him, I said, all you have to do is say snow on TV in Atlanta. We'll shut down for a week or ten days. 
<laughs> that's after raiding the grocery stores and oh yeah, it's got to get the bread and the meal, you know. <laughs> well, the first time I ever drove in snow was in Atlantic. I, or I'd been around snow, but I was a, a, a kid in Germany when it snowed so much there. It snowed uh, first day of spring one year we were over there. It ran, it snowed three and a half feet first day of spring and it was they had a record heat wave when I the summer of 1969 we were there they had a record heat wave it got up all the way up to 69 degrees that had been the hottest it had been in Germany in 50 60 years or so that year but but um when I guess it was I moved here in July of 82 and so it was a, it was the winter of 82, first part of 83. Remember that bad snowstorm we had? First mm-hmm. time I'd ever dri- driven in snow. But uh, it took, uh, it took uh, at that time I was living in Marietta, and I was working at Lenox Mall. So I got off early and went home early. And my uh, then wife worked right across the street, but she didn't get off as early as I did. And... Uh, it took her four and a half hours, you know. Of course, we took back roads, so the roads weren't, you know. We were, we were really near the interstate where they would clear it. When that storm hit that day, our office was in the Omni, and the offices were underground. We did not have, well, we weren't technically underground, but we were on. there were no windows. It was concrete block all the way around the bottom level, and we had no windows, and I was actually... I was at the office, I was by myself, and I was reconciling the checkbook. Had to do that once a month. And it was it it was a long process. It, it once you got started, there was no stopping point. You had to finish. So I remember sitting there and the phone ringing, and it was it was it was Jim Barnett and he said, "What are you doing?" and I told him. And he said, "Well, you need to finish up and get out of there." He said, "This weather looks really really bad." And I said, "Okay." So I really didn't think anything about it. I hung the phone up and continued doing what I was doing. He called back about 45 minutes later, and he goes, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm you know, I'm here. I'm, I'm almost through. I said, I maybe have 20, 25 more minutes. And he told me, he said, and this is what I knew how bad it was. He said, I'm going to call back in 30 minutes. He said, if you answer the phone, you're fired. Hmm. He said, the weather's that bad. So I was able to I was able to finish up. Of course, phone ring. I wasn't going to answer it anyway. But but as as I got through, I went outside. I got in my pickup truck. I could not get out of the Omni parking lot. The snow and ice was that bad. I had no idea how bad it was around the city. And, of course, I found out later. I went back inside. I called Jim, told him. I said, I can't get out of here. I said, you know, they got the, the parking lot snowed in. I said, I'm going to spend the night on the couch in your office. I said, I'll be here. And he said, well, what are you going to eat? What are you going to do? And about that time, some people from the Hawks office came down, and they were they had canceled the basketball game, and they had opened up their kitchen, and they made some homemade soup. And, they, you know, they, we were making preparations to be snowbound. And yeah. uh, about an hour later, Mr. Randy showed up, had to meet his wife. She was trying to ride Marta to the Omni, and he had an old Buick son. It was built like a Sherman tank. And uh, we stayed there. She got there. She got there about 9 o'clock at night, and he took me home. He was able to maneuver in that mess. Mm. You don't think about it with Georgia, but I know you've told 
told some stories of some towns that you guys ran that either, you know, was it, wasn't there a place that you guys had to spend the night in the building because it, worst, it worst snowstorm back? I've ever been in in my life was in Thomaston, Georgia. Uh, it was in 1973. If you if you look at a map of Georgia, uh, or, or you remember from from studying the Georgia, uh, you have the plains, which is uh, the coastal region. Then they what they call the plains, and then the mountains, or the the plains, the Piedmont, and the mountains. And the Piedmont is where it gets a little higher than the than the coastline, but it, it, it runs up to the edge of the mountains. And it kind of runs on a parallel line from Columbus to Augusta across the state. And a snow, we were in Thomaston, Georgia, which is right on that line. And uh, we went down there, and we set the ring up. We got down there early that day. And this snowstorm, this freak storm blew in. And from 3.30 in the afternoon until 8.30 that night, it snowed about 13 inches. And it... It was not here in Georgia. When we say snow, a lot of times it's it's a mixture of of snow and ice. Where you, you know, you if you make a snowball, you kill somebody because it's hard. This was actually <laughs> snow. You could pick it up and blow it. It was dusty. And uh, Charlie Smith had got there to referee that night. And of course, when when everything was canceled, Jack, his brother, who had came down with me and Larry for the ring. He climbs in the car with Charlie, and they leave. They left us there. And uh, I think I don't remember how Charlie said he had to go, but he had to go a long way around to get back to the interstate. But 10 miles away from from Thomaston to Griffin, Georgia, is about 25 miles maybe. And Griffin ran on – this was on a – when it with the snow, this may have been a Friday night because Griffin ran on Saturday. And the next day, the promoter from Griffin came and picked us up because we, uh, you know, me and Larry worked at Griffin. She came and picked us up, and 10 miles away from Thomaston, the ground was dry. It had not even rained. When we were telling people about the snow, they thought we were lying and we were making it up. Hmm. And it was just absolutely, uh, I mean, it, it, I don't know, just, it just amazes me what the good Lord can do and, and because it... It, you know, really there's no rhyme or reason until you look at a map and you see that mountain range or where the mountains start and you see how it blew and the mountains kept it from going north. Unbelievable. We have been joined by uh, author and historian and an expert on snow, George Shire. How's the weather up there with you, George? Well, actually, thanks for having me on. Uh, actually, the weather has been a little uh, calm the last few days. We're at uh, 40 degrees, and our snow is melting, although we've got uh, four feet of snow on the phone, on the ground. So <laughs> it'll be a while, but it's a lot of flooding going on right now. Four feet of snow. <laughs> hey, I could show you pictures, man. I'm six foot tall, and it's up to my shoulders. It's all well, over. I, it's crazy. I, I, George, this Bobby, I was telling I was telling Michael, I get pictures from Darla, and she shows me the snow up there, and it's just unbelievable. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know how you guys cope with that stuff up there. Of course, I guess we had what you a, used to. We had a February that was uh, very unusual for Minnesota. We broke records for the most snowfall in that particular month, and uh, we had over 36 inches of snow in February, added to what we had on the ground, and then we got some more in March here, so it really just hasn't let up, 
except for the last few days now it's been melting and now the big flood thing is the you know the, the equation because and of course it's pothole city if anybody ever drives in these northern states with the snow the winters are just brutal on minnesota roads and uh you, you put a tire out you can break break an axle i mean it's just amazing at the holes are a car can fall in these darn things it's nuts Crazy. So crazy, crazy. Well, George, we're we're lucky to have George on because there's nobody in the uh, in the world that I know of that knows more about Minnesota, especially, but the whole Midwest wrestling from the heydays in the in the fifties when when that area was still in NWA territory through right. through Vern Gagne and the AWA and. Uh, George, through his uh, starting out as a fan, but he got involved with with writing stuff and and magazine articles and stuff like that. Became close to uh, was lucky enough to to know um, Vern Gagne, Nick Bockwinkel, several several people, including two people that we've we've lost here recently. We lost Larry Hennig, who I know was you were close to uh, in December of last year, and then here just within the last few days we lost Dick Byer, who again I know was somebody that you were close to, got to know and spent time with. So that was our way of of paying tribute to those those gentlemen. We wanted to have George on to discuss uh, their careers and and how they started. Larry, neither one of them ever, ever came through Georgia, did they, Bobby? Did Larry ever work Dick, here? I know he was in Dick, Florida for a Dick while. Dick might have worked here in the 60s, maybe passing through on the way to Florida or something. He never had an extended run here. And Larry, yeah, I neither, never, neither he one worked did. for – No, yeah. Larry, Larry worked in Florida, got, but I never, he never yeah. worked Georgia. Yeah, Larry was in Florida uh, a few times during the 70s. Uh, he and uh, – you know, what would happen is a lot of the uh, – again, being up north – uh, during the winter months, a lot of the wrestlers would take a vacation, and they would head down, and Florida was one of the destinations, and they could go down there and spend a month or five weeks, whatever. And as they're on vacation with their families, they could pick up some money because Florida, in those days, you know, you had wrestling six nights a week or seven nights a week in different towns. And so it was very easy for the guys to pick up some extra money. And I know Larry did that in 74. I think he was there in 72. Um, I'd have to look, but he was there other times as well. And, uh, yeah, he was, uh, you know, to share just a little bit about Larry. Um, one of the things that I've learned, you know, as you mentioned, I, uh, like all of us, I started out as a fan back when I was a kid in the late 50s and through the 60s. And, you know, as a fan, you, you never get close to these guys. You, you know, they were all in character. The, the heels were, they'd ignore you and shoo you away. And the baby faces, you know, you really couldn't get too close to them either. And most fans never, ever even had a chance to even talk with a favorite wrestler or anything like that. But there, there were a few of us that for, oh, I guess whatever reason, uh, eventually got to know most of the wrestlers, at least I did up here. And uh, 
simply the, the real simple way that it started for me to kind of give you a perspective is that I used to uh, go to the matches and I would buy 12, 13, 15 programs and I would put one in my own collection and then I would take the others and I would send them to different uh, fans and some promoters and even some wrestlers in different territories and they in turn would send me their program from St. Louis or Miami or Houston wherever it might be and of course it helped me build a, a collection of programs and knowing what was going on all over and so I got to know our TV announcer Marty O'Neill and Marty was quizzing me one time why I bought all these programs and so we talked about it and he thought that was pretty interesting and I had an opportunity as a a teenager to ride with him to some small town spot shows and things like that that he was doing ring announcing at so it gives you a chance to talk with him and and uh, before you know it I was talking with the wrestlers and they were talking with me and eventually you know in that kayfabe era I mean, a lot of them wouldn't let their guard down, but eventually if they learn that you're and that you're, you're not going to try to blow the whiz in a business at the time or, or anything like that, they kind of take you into their confidence. And before you know it, um, I was very fortunate to, to know guys like Red Bastine personally and, and Billy Red Lyons when he was here and uh, Bill Watts and, of course, Larry Hennig, who was one of our, our mainstays, uh, here in the AWA territory, and then Vern Gagne, and uh, got to know uh, he was Dr. X when he was here, but that was Dick Beyer. He was here uh, for a first run of three years in the late 60s, and then he was here uh, in 72 and 73, came back for another short run after uh, leaving in 1970 but he was Dr. X the whole time here under a mask. So we never had the destroyer here, but you know, knowing these guys, this is where it becomes kind of a curse because I think if my memory is correct, the last time I was on your show, we were talking about the passing of Nick Bockwinkle. And Nick was, yeah, Nick was one of my really, really closest friends in the, in the business for a long, long time. And, you know, so when, when you get to know these guys and they, I mean, Nick, Larry, Dick Beyer, Red Bastine, they would call me. What year was I in this state? When did I work for this promoter? (laughs) Did I ever wrestle this guy? I mean, these are the phone calls I would get from these guys or, or what year did I work in this territory and that sort of thing? Because they knew I could give them the answer. And, uh, so you get to know him. I had the honor of, when I look back on it now, it really was more of an honor, but I had the honor of, of having him at my house. And so they become really good friends. I've always had people ask me through the years, you know, fans will say, well, who's your favorite wrestler? Well, I had tons of favorites. I mean, we all have favorites. We had guys we enjoyed watching, but, you know, they may not have been your all-time favorite. And if I was ever pushed, push come to shove, it really does come down, and it did come down to Dick Beyer. 
he was my all-time favorite because I always liked masked wrestlers. As a kid, I, I was following masked wrestlers all around the country. I just thought it was a unique gimmick that went over so well in so many territories. And Bayer being so phenomenal with his gimmick as the destroyer and having such great success at it. Um, and I, I loved his wrestling. He was kind of a, for anybody that never saw him wrestle, he was, for lack of a better term, he was a scientific heel. He, he mm-hmm. could out-wrestle his opponents, and he, he demonstrated that type of, of arrogance, as it would be referred to, for a heel using these tactics. And on his interviews, he wasn't always out there shouting and screaming, but he, he had that air to him that you hated him and you wanted him to see, you know, ha- have him be unmasked. So I loved the gimmick. And so, yeah, Dick was my favorite. Um, we kept in touch all through the years. And he, um, I, I, Mike Norris was uh, at the Gulf Coast reunion in 2013, as was I. And when yeah. Dick Beyer was there, uh, Dick and I, again, we sat together and we chatted for a bit. And I remember saying to him, I said, Dick, you know, at two months at Cauliflower Alley, they're going to give me the historian award. And Dick, he looks at me, and of course, he's in his destroyer mask. He was always in character. <laughs> he says, I know that. And I said, well, I have a favor to ask of you. I said, I was wondering if you would do the honors of presenting the award to me at the banquet. And I tell you guys, this was one of those moments where even as a, uh, a person who has long been around the business and knows all the ins and outs and the whys and what fors, I marked out because Dick took his hand and he put it on top of my hand as we were sitting at the table. And he said to me, and I can still hear him say it in his famous gruff voice, he said, it would be an honor. And for that moment, I remember thinking, man, this means more to me Uh than that plaque I'm going to get at Cauliflower Alley. And, of course, uh, you know, a couple months later, we were at CAC. I did get the presentation for the Historian Award, something I, I, I really cherish. But I remember when Dick got up, and if any of you guys were there, you, you will recall this. He got up to the podium, and for his few minutes, he put me over. That meant more to me than the, uh, uh, the actual plaque, of which I'm looking at as I speak to you. It's hanging on my wrestling room wall. But Dick was just a very good friend. And as he was doing his book that he put out a few years ago called Masked Decisions, and I would encourage anyone that really wants to read a a great account of a fantastic person, uh, Masked Decisions is a great book. It's on Amazon. It was written by his friend uh, Vince Evans, who Vince and I have long time been friends as well. And uh, so I kept in touch with Dick. Every once in a while, he would call. I always thought it was unique when he'd send just out of the blue. I mean, it didn't happen often, but occasionally I'd go to the mailbox, and there'd be an envelope with a 8x10 in it. 
uh, or the one time he sent three eight by tens that he had taken of himself back before, right before he became the destroyer. They were shots of him still as buyer. And he just said, I thought you needed these for your collection. And one hmm. time he sent me a picture of Dr. X and he put on there for your wall of fame. You know, he wrote on there and signed <laughs> it. And I mean, and he knows, and it's on my wall as I speak to you. I mean, I, it was just that type of stuff that was so unique. I did talk to him every year for the past several years on his birthday. Um, I would make a call. And so his birthday is January 11th, or I'm sorry, July 11th. And I spoke to him last July. Uh, we talked for a few minutes. He was, coming, he was coming off of some heart surgery, and he's had some medical issues the past year or so. And so, you know, he told me he's doing his best to get better and, and uh, Wilma's trying to keep him down and, and he's, he wants to make it back to CAC and everything because he wasn't there last year. Uh, I got his Christmas card this year and he put the message in there that he was still, still feeling tired, not 100%, and he didn't think that he would make CAC yet this year. So... Ironically, um, I don't know, it was about a week and a half ago, I had uh, had been away from the Internet for a few days. My wife and I uh, just took a short vacation, and I just ignored the Internet. And when I came back on, someone had asked me in a private message if I'd heard any news on Dick Byer. So I got a hold of Kurt, his son, and we chatted, and he said, Dad's just slowing down a lot and we're staying around him. And so I didn't think too much of it. Uh, Wednesday, a week ago, I gave, gave him a call and I got a hold of Wilma, his wife. She, she and I talked for about pretty close to a half hour. And she said that Dick had been put into hospice and that he was uh, not responding to anybody he didn't seem to recognize anybody. She said the only person that he recognized for some odd reason was Dennis DePaulo, who was the son or is the son of Ilio DePaulo, the wrestler from the 50s and 60s, which was ironic because when I was at the 2016 CAC reunion, I sat at Dick's table with his son, Kurt, Wilma, his wife, and Dennis DePaulo and his wife. And uh, Joyce Poston was with us as well at that table. So, but she said that he, he really was just not doing well. And he'd had a lot of intestinal infections, things like that. And she said the family is there. They're around him. And uh, so as I got done with Wilma on the phone, I, I told her, I said, well, please tell him I said hi and that I'm praying for him and that we need him to get back up so we can get to that CAC. And uh, I told her, I said, I'm going to send him a nice card, which I went out afterwards. I got a card at the the drugstore. It was one of these blank cards where you can write your own message in it. And I put a few words in there and sent it off. Well, the very next morning, which would have been a week ago today, I got a phone message on my phone from Wilma, that Dick had passed away at 12 or around noon, she said, um, last Thursday. 
So that was really kind of quick, kind of a shock. And I will tell you that these wrestlers, because they become your friends, um, I've learned that having that friendship is also a curse because every time I lose one of those friends, it just grinds at me. And this really, just really took me back this week. I I haven't even been able to write anything on the Internet about it. It's just every time I try to write something, I found myself, as odd as this may seem, with this particular situation that I was actually tearing up. And, uh, you know, as we speak uh, today, tomorrow, and then Saturday morning, uh, the funeral services are being held for Dick in Akron, Ohio. Uh, I'm sorry, Akron, New York. And um, so, yeah, it's just a very, uh, a, a very big loss. And what a, what a great wrestler, what a great, uh, advocate for the sport of wrestling through the years. And, you know, it, his work in Japan, he received the highest awards any ever given to, uh, American wrestlers over there. If you, uh, anybody who followed Japanese wrestling in the sixties and the seventies, they had regular tournaments over there all year round every year where, a group of six or eight or 10 American wrestlers would go over there for these tournaments for two and three and four week term time periods. And, uh, anytime the American wrestlers went over, um, they were basically the heels on Japanese territory, but Dick Beyer as the destroyer was the one American who was on the Japanese side. They loved the guy. And he was over there so much that uh, he had his own television show. And uh, he would take later on, after he uh, wasn't wrestling full-time anymore, he would take uh, a group of boys over there during the summer for wrestling training. And he was so involved with his, he was a swimming coach in uh, Syracuse. He was involved with a uh, swimming team and stayed active with his uh, um Lions Club and Knights of Columbus. And I mean, he just was always out there. And just anybody who saw him at Cauliflower Alley throughout the years, uh, he he was always willing to chat with fans. He was always the destroyer. And he, he just was a phenomenal human being. Um, with that, and since you mentioned Larry Hennig, I want to share, and I don't know if you guys were there at Cauliflower Alley this particular year when this uh, took place, but if when you hear the story, if you were there, you will you know what I'm talking about. Larry Hennig was at Cauliflower, and so was Dick, of course, as the destroyer. And again, remember Dick Byer's voice, very recognizable. Uh, he was one of those guys that didn't really need a microphone because he could project. <laughs> And we walked into the banquet room, the night of the banquet at CAC. And, Larry, and here comes uh, Dick. I, I always called him Doc. And he, he went by that because he was Dr. X for us. So if I say Doc at all, you know who I'm speaking of. But uh, he, he comes in with his destroyer mask on, of course. And Larry Hennig went up to the podium and took the microphone and he yelled out to Dick Beyer, 
He said, Dick, take off the mask. It's over. And Bayer, with not even a flinch of a second, turns around and in that Bayer voice says, I can still kick your ass, Hennig. And it got a roar from the group. It was a phenomenal moment. But Larry and Dick were very good friends. Uh, obviously, during the, the five years that Dick worked in the AWA, they became very close. They were both opponents and tag team partners while he was here. They did things outside the ring. It was rather interesting because on Sunday, this past Sunday, uh, Larry's wife, Irene, called me, and she wanted to know if I was okay because of Dick passing. And she knew that he and I were close as well. So Irene and I talked for a little bit. And then, of course, with Larry passing uh, in December, uh, that one that one came real quick, too, because, again, um, right around the middle of November, I was with Larry Hennig and his family. There was an event here in uh, Robbinsdale, Minnesota, Larry's hometown. It's a suburb of Minneapolis, and that's where he grew up. That's where he went to high school, and they had a... Uh, they were naming a beer after him from a, with a microbrewery that was in town, and Larry was the guest of honor. And, you know, they made a big deal of it this day. The mayor of Robbinsdale declared it Larry Hennig Day. And Larry's, and you know, if you met Larry, Larry Hennig's family, uh, there were very, oh, my God, very, very close family. And he's got 26 great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And most of them were there. You you just saw the camaraderie of the family. It was great. Joe Hennig had made an appearance. Uh, Joe Hennig, of course, is working for the uh, WWE as Curtis Axel. He was in, he was there for just a short time. And, uh, but I sat with Larry through the entire thing. Larry was selling some or signing some photos uh, of himself. And he had some, uh, uh, photos of the family and we chatted we had they had a little event i larry told me to go up on the stage and and talk about his wrestling career because larry says you know more about me than i know about me and then i'll go up and talk about my family he said so that's the way it went off on that particular day so it was a great day well two days later this was on a weekend this was on a saturday and on monday morning my telephone rang and here it was Larry Hennig. And Larry said, I just wanted to thank you for Saturday. He said, you know, as always, you put me over. He said it was great. And he said, I, I just want to let you know that we appreciate everything that you do for, that you have done for, for pro wrestling. Uh, we chatted for a little bit. And, you know, I, I walked away and I went upstairs and I said to my wife, I said, that was Larry on the phone. He called to thank me. I said, man, I said, what a great guy, you know. Well, then we get the word uh, just two weeks later that he passed away. And, you know, again, because this friendship thing, I realized that that was the last time I talked with him and he was calling me to thank me. And I stop and I say, what? There's something wrong with this, you know. (laughs) Because, um, but it tells you, what what great guys they are. And I had known uh, 
Larry since the, the early 60s uh, when he first became Pretty Boy Hennig and turned heel. And, uh, you know, with Dick, it was the – I met him a couple years after he was uh, – after he had come here as Dr. X. And I met him through a weird kind of circumstance. I had actually uh, organized a wrestling card, a spot show, for my then hometown – Cottage Grove, uh, in it's a suburb of St. Paul. Uh, I put it in our high school gymnasium, which a lot of these spot shows would take place in around the the cities, you know, and the, either that or the small National Guard Armory type things. And I had put the card together as a fundraiser for our uh, police reserve department, and I was the ring announcer and that sort of thing, and. So I had to go back into the locker room or had the opportunity to talk with the wrestlers that were there. And Dick was the one in charge of uh, that particular spot show for the wrestlers. And it's a long story what happened with the card, but that's when we became friends and it stayed that way. And that was in 1970. So through the years, um, we had stayed in touch. And uh, in, the, in 2000, the year 2000, when uh, Dick Beyer, Red Bastine, and Nick Bockwinkle were the three wrestlers that brought me on to the executive board of the Cauliflower Alley. And I remember that being kind of a uh, humbling moment as well, because when I went into the board meeting, the first board meeting, um, that's when the board was still made, uh, consisted of mostly former wrestlers, Bayer, Bastine, Bachwinkle for three of them. Killer Kowalski was there. Penny Banner was there. Um, Tom Drake was there. And um, I'm probably leaving somebody, a couple out here, but, um, you know, when I, I remember the first time I walked into that room for the first board meeting and there, there were my friends and, so for me as a fan, um, it has been a very, very rewarding life because I have been afforded that opportunity to write about these guys in magazines in the, in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, and then do books, different things, always having their cooperation. Um, I, have a, I have a book that uh, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling that Dick Beyer uh, wrote a book uh, piece on the back cover of the of the book and he was when I asked him if he'd do it he said you didn't even have to ask you know I mean it was just that type of a thing so it really does uh, sometimes it's it's I, I said to my wife I said you know sometimes it's a curse when they're your friends because then it hurts even more when they leave um, yep. we've lost absolutely so true. many we have lost so many of the great great uh, wrestlers of the past in the past 20 years, and it's inevitable. I mean, they get old, you know, they get sick. We're all going to eventually pass. We we can't escape that. But um, not all of them affect me that way. Uh, Billy Robinson, I never really knew Billy. Billy was a f great wrestler, absolutely a credit to the business. When he passed, I was sad, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like uh, the Nick Bockwinkle. Same with Mad Dog Michonne when he left us. Mad Dog, you know, 
one of the heels that absolutely he could scare the heck out of anybody. And he was so believable and so, uh, so intense in his work in the ring, but outside the ring, one of the greatest guys. And I remember one time, well, he also, when I was telling you about sending me pictures in the mail, Mad Dog also, one, one time I got an envelope from Omaha, Nebraska, and inside were some 8 by 10s of Mad Dog, and he says, I thought you would enjoy these. Um, you know, a lot of these guys, they, they sell the photos to their supposed fans, I guess, but uh, that was an example. And I know one time uh, I was sitting at the Hall of Fame in Iowa, in Waterloo, Iowa, and I was at the book table. I had some of my books there along with some other uh, wrestling books and authors and that sort of thing. And sitting across from me at the table was uh, Mad Dog and his wife, and Mad Dog had some photos and different things that he was selling. And his wife, Kathy, came over to me and patted me on the shoulder, and she said, Mad Dog wants to buy one of your books. And I looked up at her and I said, I'll be right over there. So I went over and I chatted with him. I said, Mad Dog, you're not going to buy my book. I said, if you'd like a book, you've got a book. And I gave him a book and he gave me a couple of his pictures, one of them which I didn't have. And, you know, that was the type of a thing where, um, and when he passed away, and and the, the last time I saw him there, um, I told my wife, I said, that's going to be the last time I see Mad Dog because he wasn't recognizing anybody anymore. And Kathy, his wife, she said, he doesn't really know who you are, but he's doing a lot of smiling, you know, that sort of thing. And that was like yeah. so sad. But it was, uh, that was in July and November of that year, then he passed away. So, yeah, when Dick left us last week, um, I just... I think of all of the great, great wrestlers and his story behind his mask. I mean, there are masked wrestlers that put a mask on for a short time and then never, never wrestled with it again. Uh, there were wrestlers that were in and out of masks over the years and they would unmask and everybody would know who they are with the destroyer. His gimmick became his life. And, you know, when he was at Cauliflower Alley in any of these events, if he didn't have that destroyer mask on, he was invisible because nobody knew who he was. And he could walk yeah. anywhere and nobody <clears throat> recognized Dick Byer, at least the average casual fans. And so that, that mask became him. And, he, he, you know, he had the ability with his drawing power and his charisma and his character to – you know, tell any promoter he worked with that I will never take off a destroyer mask. We can work all kinds of gimmicks around it, but I'm never unmasking. And he didn't as the destroyer in the United States. He never unmasked. He would leave the territory, but he would never unmask. Now, when he came to work for Vern in 1968, 1967 in August, um, this story is told in his, in his mask decision books. And it's one that, you know, we've talked about for years, but uh, Vern and Dick had wrestled in Chicago in 
uh, the spring and summer of 1967 when Dick was wrestling as the destroyer for the Bruisers group in Indianapolis, WWA group. And Vern and Bruiser both owned Chicago together. So Chicago was one of those unique towns where they got AWA talent and they got WWA talent on the same cards. And it was the only city that, that benefited like that. So the Destroyer was in Chicago and actually wrestled Vern for his title, AWA title. After the match, Vern and Dick had a discussion, and Vern told him, I'd like you to come into Minneapolis. Minneapolis, of course, being the headquarters for the AWA in all its cities. As they agreed to, to terms, Dick reminded him that, you know I'm not unmasking. And Vern insisted that at the time when it's time for you to leave, you know, that's something we're going to want. So they mutually agreed that Dick would come into the territory as an unknown, and they created the Dr. X character. Completely different outfit. You know, Destroyer always had his white mask with a colored trim around the nose and face and the same color trunks as the trim on the mask, and then he'd have his white boots. Dr. X came in with a black tunic top, a pair of red or yellow trunks he carried, and uh, black tights and black boots. And originally, when he was the heel, he had an all-black mask with his nose covered with kind of a... Uh, and you've seen the mask with the nose covering the plastic piece or right. whatever it is over the over the nose. And it's, you know, complete face is completely uh, hidden. And um, so during the three-year run as a heel, when it came time for, for Dick to, you know, and during that three-year time, he had every, as in any territory, they put every baby face against him. And, I mean, he, he basically was in the ring with a who's who of the business at the time. You know, Bill Watts, Wilbur Snyder, Vern Gagne, Reggie Parks, Rene Goulet, Larry Hennig, uh, uh, and just on and on and on. And the Crusher and the Bruiser and, you know, Mad Dog and Dutch Savage and Hard Boiled Haggerty and you name it. All these guys <coughs> were, were, were going to take the mask off Dr. X. Now, that was part of the lure at the, the box office. And every, every, every day, he, by hook or crook, he saved his mask. Well, when he decided he wanted to leave in 1970 in August, he went to Vern in June, and he said, you know, I think we're gonna, I'm going to want to take a trip around the world with my family. And he started booking matches around the, around the world as the destroyer. He was going to Singapore and Australia, Japan, uh, he was in Germany, had various stops that he had planned on this, this vacation working trip he was planning. So Vern and him over the next two months worked out how they were going to uh, reveal who Dr. X was, because that was originally part of the deal. And he was unmasked in a couple of the AWA towns where his opponent, Blackjack Lanza, and one of the other opponents was Paul Diamond. They actually had unmaskings. But it was unique because in those unmaskings, Dr. X was revealed to be Bruce Marshall. It was a made-up name. And those fans never had any other chance to see him. But in St. Paul, they worked the angle a little bit different. Dick, as Dr. X, 
was tag team partners with Jack Lanza and Bobby Heenan as their manager. They had a falling out on TV, and Lanza and Heenan pretty much roughed up the dock. And they immediately, that since wrestling was live, and then they would have the auditorium show right after wrestling, that night they rearranged the main event on the card, and Lanza wrestled Dr. X in a surprise move. And he actually unmasked him, but Dick had a towel and threw it over his face, and they hauled him out because he'd been bloodied up, and they kind of left it that way, like, what happened? And everybody was throwing the guesses, the usual thing, you know, who was he? Did you recognize him? Well, Dr. X came out on TV the following week, and he asked for promoter Wally Carbo to come out. Come out here. I need to talk with you. He said, I want to match another match with Jack Lanza. And Wally Carbo said, well, I don't know if Lanza's going to agree, and I can't just put that together. And Doc got a little more belligerent. He said, you're not listening to me. I want a match with Jack Lanza, and I'm not leaving here till I get it. And Carbo still stammered and stuttered a little bit. Finally, Doc said, listen, Carbo, for three years, you have stuck everybody at anybody in the ring with me, and I've wrestled everyone. I've done everything you've asked me to do. Now, I want a match with Jack Lanza. And he said, I want the match, and I will take off my mask to get it. And, of course, Carbo, he played his part. He said, you will what? You will remove your mask? And then the match was signed. So that the following week in the auditorium, St. Paul Auditorium, Dr. X enters the ring with his mask on, Marty O'Neill, the announcer, announces to the crowd some information about Dick Byer. And he introduces him as Dick Byer from Syracuse University. And Doc takes off the mask and hands it to St. Paul promoter Eddie Williams, who was in the ring. And for that one match only, Dick Byer wrestled as Dick Byer. He got Pretty well bumped around by Lanza. He lost, and he was gone. And then, of course, for a few weeks, they played up, you know, what happened to Dr. X? Will we ever see him again? Where did he go? Is he injured? You know, the programs played this up. And then eventually there was no mention. And then a year later, a little over a year later, Dr. X came back, and he was still a heel. Got into the ring. Uh, he was going to be a substitute tag team partner for Lars Anderson, who claimed to be injured, had his arm in a sling, and he was going to team up with Larry Hennig, Lars's regular partner at the time. Well, during the course of the match on TV, Hennig is using his usual behind-the-referee's-back tactics, and Doc was telling the referee to check his knee pad and don't do it. He was telling Larry, what are you doing? You could see him doing it. And before you know it, Hennig and then Lars Anderson, who all of a sudden didn't have that injured arm, they were double teaming Dr. X on TV. That was the first hint of him becoming a babyface. 
And then two weeks later, he had a confrontation with Ray Stevens on TV. Now, Ray Stevens was famous for his bombs away off the top rope, which the AWA made coming off the top rope an automatic disqualification. And actually a very good move because that way, every time Stevens or another wrestler did it, they were doing it behind the referee's back and they didn't get disqualified, that sort of a thing. So it worked great. But on this TV angle, they had Ray go berserk on the dock. Doc got tangled up in the ropes, the ring ropes, and was hanging upside down with his leg and knee twisted into the ropes. And Stevens came off the top rope onto his knee. He grabbed the ringside bell and, you know, smashed him over the knee with it. And they carried Dr. X out with his leg broken. Well, that was all a setup because Dick needed to have knee surgery. So this was a way for them to have him have his knee surgery. And then it was about five, six weeks later, Dr. X came back and had a ready-made feud with Ray Stevens, who put him out of action, promoting at its best, you know, from a, from a promotional standpoint. And from the rest of his tenor in the AWA then for the next year, he was a babyface. And when he left, he ended up going to Japan for a six-year stint uh, in the 70s. And he was working with Baba over there uh, until pretty much the late part of the 70s, around 78, 79. And uh, that, was, that, was, that was Dick Beyer, just a, a great, great wrestler who worked in a lot of territories. He worked up in Canada. He worked in California. He worked in Hawaii, in Texas, Indianapolis, uh, Detroit, into Minneapolis, uh, the, the Pacific Northwest Territory, all of these as the destroyer, and absolutely a main event everywhere he went. So we lost one of the greatest, 88 years old, a week ago. And so they introduced him. There you go. That's my tribute. To, <laughs> when he came into Minnesota, they, they did something unique with him. They had him basically sitting at ringside in street clothes or a trench coat and his mask, just sitting yep. there among the fans, just watching the match. And he was particularly paying attention to Vern Gagne's matches. And he did this, what, four or five weeks before they ever, you know, began to question who he was or interview him or whatever. And uh, that's just, you know, every territory's had the gimmick of somebody coming out of the, you know, a fan coming out of the crowd and and doing all that stuff. That's how Ox Baker started. And that's how, you know, a lot of, a lot of different people did. Uh, But that was unique with him. But that was unique with him just sitting there. And then uh, Mm -hmm. that's kind of how they introduced him. Well, and, and, you know, the exact time frame was August of 67 when on the very first week when he sat center front row at the TV studio, he had a suit and tie on with the mask on. And the, the TV announcers made one mention during the broadcast. They said, there's a fan sitting in the front row with a mask on. Oh, boy. You know, something like that. <laughs> Nothing else was said. Well, then we get to week two. And the commentary was made, well, that fan is again here with the mask on. And again, nothing more really said. By the third week, 
That was when, during, after one of the matches, the guy with the mask comes over to the interview area to Marty O'Neill, and he very politely, he wasn't obstinate or anything, he said, I would like to have a match with one of these wrestlers. I mean, it was still Dick Byers' voice, but it was, you know, not loud or obnoxious or anything. And Wally Carbo, the promoter, came out and he said, sir, you're going to have to have a seat or we're going to have to ask you to leave the studio. And they had the, the security guard there escort him back to his seat. So the following week, they, he does the same thing. He came out and he said, I'd like to have a match with one of these wrestlers. And again, they escorted him immediately back to his seat. Well, during the course of that particular program, Vern Gagne, who was the champion at the time, he was wrestling in a match against Jack Pesek. And in those days when finishing holds meant something to the outcome of a match, Vern was famous for his drop kicks and his sleeper hold. He had given Jack Pesek a drop kick. He had called the sleeper hold on him in the, in the ring. And as he did that, the mask guy jumps up out of his seat, goes up on the ring apron, up on the top rope, comes down onto Vern's neck, Vern falls to the canvas, and the, the masked man puts the figure four leg lock on the champion, and he won't release it. And Vern is screaming in pain, saying, you know, I quit, I quit, I give, I give. And they carried Vern out, and oh, my gosh, what's, what's the deal with the champ? We'll keep you informed, fans. You know, they, they played it so beautifully. And then the masked guy comes out, and he's, now he's a little more obnoxious. He says, for several weeks, I've been out here asking for a match with with one of these wrestlers. He said, I just beat your world champion. And then Wally Carbo comes out. And he said, I don't know what kind of maniac you are, but if you want a match, you've got a match with the crusher. And that would take place the following week. Now, you have to remember the impact that would have had in 67 because at that particular time, Aside from Vern Gagne, there was nobody in the AWA that was more popular than the Crusher. And the Crusher had beaten everybody. And anytime there was a roughneck in town, the Crusher was their opponent. So this really made sense. And as that match took place, Dr. X beat the Crusher. And then for the next three years, it was anybody and everybody had a chance to take the mask off. They wanted to come in and take a chance, or they thought they had a chance, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that story you relate is, is exactly how it happened. Just a unique way of introducing somebody new to the territory and getting him over right away. Well, you, it, it, you have yeah. people talking about him. Yep, yep. Still with us, Bobby? Yeah, man. I'm just listening. Uh, you know, I, uh, he was ahead. talking about how that uh, you know you develop this. Uh, uh, the way I've always worded it, George, is my heroes became my friends. Right. And it is it is such a unique. Uh, growing up, you know, my friends, you know, we would imagine uh, they would imagine they were playing for the Yankees or the Baltimore Colts or whoever. And all I ever wanted to do was be in the wrestling business. And of course, I, they thought I was crazy. But you know, and I guess I did too to some degree. But 
Uh, one of the things, you talk about being friends with these guys and them calling you and knowing you, and I tell people this, and I guess maybe I'm, maybe I'm the only one that really understands it, but to me it is such a kick to know that Luthez knew me on a first-name basis. That exactly. just absolutely blows me away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, Bobby, and, and that's that was the uniqueness of it. Um, when when they would, you know, Red Bastine, when he would he would call, oh, every other month or so, and it was always just to call and say hi. And you know, when when I'd get Christmas messages on the phone from the Bachwinkle family, and from Red Bastine and and Dick, and and I mean. You do, you kind of pinch yourself, you know, because we don't always get to meet our heroes, much less have them call you their friend. And, you know, Abel, uh, he'd always, come on back here, sit down. You know, I'd go sit with him at, at his table in the last couple of times when he was selling his books there. And well-known and as loved as the Crusher and Ganya and Mad Dog and any other AWA wrestler because he was a mainstay for 30 years and he wrestled anybody and everybody. And he held an annual uh, benefit for about 15 years straight for histiocytosis, which was a medical condition that his own grandson had. And he would hold this benefit. uh, One of those, uh, just a great guy. I mean, uh, about him, he was probably, the first one I can remember ever doing, selling his own gimmicks through the, the magazines and everything. He had the yeah. Destroyer T-shirts and the Dr. X T-shirts and the cigarette lighters and, yep. you know, all kinds of stuff. And, and he was probably hit, hit mainstream as far as pop culture before, ever before Hulk Hogan or Dusty Rose, mainly because Deborah Harry of the rock band Blondie, yeah. did a concert wearing a Dr. X t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, he also, in his later years, he would play Santa Claus for, uh, you know, the children's homes, the children's hospitals, and the, the uh, some handicapped children, that sort of thing. And I mean, I just sit back and I say, you know, can you imagine as a little kid, you know, Santa Claus is such a, a part of your young life anyway, and you know, here you got Dick Byer who's just playing that role and probably doing it so well. Um, I, I the other day when when I got news that he had passed, I was going through my I got several files on Dick Byer in my cabinets, and I was going through them and I came across an email from Dick from a few months, I don't know four, five, six months before his book was to be published. And Dick sent the email to me asking me if, and his his exact question was, did I ever hold the AWA tag team title? And would you let my editor, Vince Evans, know the details? Well, I explained to him that no, you never held the AWA tag team title. I told him which partners he worked with. And, of course, I get the thanks. I knew you would know. And, you know, it's stuff like that, you say. And, and, you know, Nick Bockwinkle explained it to me one time. And we'd get in the car after the matches and hope we got paid. And we'd head to the, to the local uh, uh, 
or to get some beer and bread and bologna and go back to the hotel, get up the next morning, drive another 300, 400 miles to get to the next town and do everything all over again. And he said, we didn't save pictures. We didn't save programs. We didn't even see magazines that we were in. And he said, then when we come across guys like you, meaning me and others, he says, it blows our mind that that you, you had the wherewithal to save this stuff. And, you know, Nick, he walked in one time to my wrestling room. And if you knew Nick, you'd understand the face I'm going to explain. He comes through the doorway of the room and he stops and he looks and his head just spans from wall to wall. And he looks at me with that grin and he says to me, you're sick. (laughs) I mean, that's a compliment from Nick Bockwinkle. But then he sits down and he's looking at programs and if you got anything from this territory or that territory, and, of course, I get stuff out for him. And, you know, I had mentioned that they, they call you on the phone and they say, uh, did I ever wrestle here or what? Did, who, did, I, did I ever wrestle this guy? Nick called me one time and he asked me, he said, did I ever work in Buffalo? And I said, yeah, you were there in 1962. And he said, uh, I said, but you weren't Nick Bockwinkle there. He said, well, who was I? I said, well, you went in as Roy Diamond. Then Nick, he said, I went in there for Martinez, Pedro Martinez, the promoter. And I don't know this for fact, but I guess they're pay the guys as he promised or that sort of thing. So, Nick came, you know, continued his story, and he said, when I got in there, Martinez told me he didn't want young Nicky Bockwinkle on his card because this was long before his heel days. He didn't want young Nicky Bockwinkle. He wanted to know if it was okay if he called me Roy Diamond. And Nick replied, I don't care if you bill me as asshole just as long as you pay me. (laughs) And he laughed about that because, and Nick says, And that was the way it was with him. And he wrestled four matches for Pedro Martinez. And I told Nick that. I said, you were only there for four cards. He's like, no, I left. He he wasn't paying. So that was the way that story went. But it's just unique when uh, what became a hobby for me as a kid and then going into adulthood because I, I, I live every day for finding results, researching territory results, researching wrestler results. And I've got tons of life results records of wrestlers that I've, you know, they're never complete because you always find something new, but it's so much fun. And you, you sit back and you say, what an honor when they call you because they don't remember. And when they say to you, you know more about me than I know about me. Um, Greg Gagne, he he did that same thing here about two years ago. I had a message on my phone when I got home one night, and Greg was, he says to me, he said, I hesitated in calling you earlier this week, but Vern is going, and I'll tell you why he said that. He said, Vern is going to be inducted into the Robbinsdale uh, High School Hall of Fame on Saturday, which would have been tomorrow night when he called me. 
And he said, they want me to say a few words about him because Vern had already, you know, he'd long gone with his Alzheimer's at that point. He was still alive. But Greg said, I was going to have to say a few words about him, but I hesitated on calling you because I figured you were going to correct me on everything that I said. And he says it in a comical way. And when we talk, you know, Greg and I talk, he does the same thing. He says, uh, when did Byrne do this or when, when did this happen? And one of the greatest times was on the morning of, of Vern Gagne's memorial service when he passed away, on the morning before the service, Greg gave me a call and he said to me, wasn't Vern's first professional match on May 10th? And I said to him, I said, no, it was May 3rd, but you and Vern always claimed it was May 10th. He said, well, can we change it to May 10th for the funeral today? <laughs> I said, well, you can do anything you want, Craig. But, and it really was May 3rd of 1949. So what I did before I went to the memorial service is I had went to my files and I made a copy of the, of the program and the newspaper clipping with the results for Vern's first professional match. I made a copy of it and I took it with me. And when I went to the memorial service, I just, when I got up to Greg, I said, Greg, here, put this in your pocket. I said, this is what we talked about this morning. And later on, he goes, man, I don't know how you got all this stuff. I said, well, this is what excites me. I'm sick, you know. But these guys are great. And as, as a person who was a fan, and I, I'm still a fan of the old school, I do not watch anything that's out there today. It's a different product, and we'll just leave it at that. But I feel more blessed every day that I had the opportunity to be part of an era of wrestling that most people of the modern era will never, ever understand because they never had a chance to experience it. And it was different, and it was unique, and I can't imagine, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't imagine today's fans of the modern product that 50 years from now, they're going to be people like me around looking back on today's product. I, I don't know that that can happen. We just lived and we were blessed in a unique time. The way you are about Minnesota is the way I am about the Gulf Coast territory, which was you know, we didn't have a whole lot of top stores and we didn't get any kind of magazine coverage or anything like that in that territory. But <clears throat> it's amazing to me since I started putting together my uh, website, which, by the way, has died a slow, painful death. Uh, <clears throat> it is no longer after 10 years of me putting all that work into it uh, because the the guy that actually owns the website that I host or host that hosts off of uh, or mine hosts off of um, I've put so much information and stuff on there that it's it's taken up all the bandwidth <laughs> I can't add no. anything else to it so I can't afford to build my own I'm just going to leave it alone and not add anything or I can't add any more to it but <clears throat> at some point I'm going to uh, you know hopefully one day I'll be able to have my own website and do it the way I want to do it and do it more in depth. But 
getting back to what I was saying, I, I as I've done the research over the years, um, just here within the last year, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, those two states were a, in the very early 50s before the Welch family bought that territory down there. It was basically a conglomerate of promoters uh, in Alabama, Joe Gunther in, in based in Birmingham, Alabama, um, uh, Billy, um, he was a former wrestler, he was a world welterweight champion. Um, I can't think of his name, but anyway, he was based in Jackson, Mississippi, and they, they supplied all the wrestlers, them and Nick Goulis and Roy Welch out of Tennessee. Those three uh, had a group of wrestlers that they farmed out to individual promoters in these cities between Mobile, New Orleans, Birmingham, Jackson, Greenwood, Mississippi, uh, Pensacola, Florida, all that. So it was all a group of these same group of wrestlers, you know, barnstorming through these, these various states until Roy Welch bought... He bought out Joe Gunther first, then he bought out uh, the guy in Mississippi and uh, started, you know, developing what would become the Gulf Coast Territory in 1954, but still worked loosely with the Louisiana and Mississippi promoters until he totally bought all that out and it kind of separated up. But I would have never thought Vern Gagne ever appeared in a Gulf Coast town. Well, he did. He spent two weeks in Louisiana. He must have been in Texas at the time, and uh, and he was coming through. But there's so many big names that came through that that territory that you know it's it's just unbelievable. It was it's excited for me as as a historian, you know, looking like oh wow this guy came through. You know, I, I of all people Jim Haiti came through there. Names that I would have yeah. never thought were ever associated with the Gulf Coast territory came through there. I knew Blassie did. Uh, also in Louisiana, uh, uh, McIntyre, Don McIntyre, who was the owner of the Georgia Territory at the time, spent a couple of weeks in Louisiana and Mississippi working for, you know, that group of guys. So it's it's just thrilling to me. The French Angel appeared in Pensacola. But you could have never told me that the French Angel worked in Pensacola, Florida in 1950. I'd have never believed because he was such a big name. The Swedish angel came through. Phil Olsen. You know, all these guys came through. Mm. It's just, well, it, see, that's, it's fascinating to me. That's the fun thing, Mike, when you when you do research and you come across these things, That that's where the fascination comes in. I know there was a time about uh, two years ago when you uh, provided me with a clipping couple of newspaper clippings of Stan Kowalski when he came through yeah. your territory mm-hmm. and he was he was Joe Zabisco Joe Zabisco and yeah he worked I, in Montgomery as Joe Zabisco right yeah and and to that point and you know as as a fan who appreciates this research all the time um, when when I find something like that out and I know you can feel this you're almost like a kid on Christmas morning when you open Absolutely. up the package that you hope Santa would bring for you. And when you told me that Joe Kowalski thing, I've got Stan Kowalski's uh, 
entire one loss record. But you provided me with something and one of the names that he used that was all but brief. You know, it's sort of like that yeah. Roy Diamond thing for, for Nick Bockwinkle. That was a blip on the radar that Nick Bockwinkle had, but he was Roy Diamond for four shows. And that's the stuff. Did that I send you the uh, did I send you the clippings of the street fight that Stan got into in Memphis with a bunch of teenage yes. boys? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I think he I was Joe Zabisco yeah. there too. Yes, I mean it was like wow. I don't believe this. In fact, I shared that. I shared those with Stan before he passed. Um, you know, and there was another one that was so sad for me uh, when he left us a year and a half ago. I had um, his son asked me to do the eulogy at his at his memorial service, and uh, that was one of the times when I didn't think I was going to get through it. Because he was another guy that was so just so good to me as a person through the years. But yeah, I shared that with him, that Joe Zabisco thing. People just don't realize in, in this day and age the, the way these guys travel. I mean, they get everywhere. I mean, it 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 it's the territories began to shrink down in the you know in the seventies when it was beginning to you know, it was more designated. You know, guys like Ernie right. Ladd and Andre and those guys that were big big stars would, would go through those. But back you look back in the in the late forties and the fifties and the way these guys try and this is before interstates and stuff like that, it's amazing. I mean you can have oh, a I guy know. working in Pensacola, Florida on, on on a Friday night, Saturday he's in Greenwood, Mississippi Monday, he's in New Orleans. I mean, it's the same guys, and it's it's so weird. Two guys would be, you know, beating each other's brains out in one town, and then they're tag teaming in the next because people couldn't, they didn't know. They had no way of knowing. No way they would have found out. And, I mean, that was the first thing that when I was still a kid, when I started getting all of these programs from the different territories, and I would see that, you know, the two guys that are in the cage match in Minneapolis uh, last week, they're, uh, they're, they were tag team partners the night before in St. Louis. And, I mean, yeah, I never exactly. told anybody. I never told anybody, you know, because when I was a kid growing up, I would get my fellow kids in school and, and they'd say, Shire, you watch that phony stuff, you know. <laughs> you know and, and I would just literally, I would just avoid the conversation because, you you know, it goes back to, to Nick Kozak would comment that when he said that for those who believe no explanation is necessary and for those who don't, no explanation will do. And that was the exactly. way I, I took it. And I, if, if a person was a fellow fan, I would talk with them. But if they weren't, they never knew I was. I'd leave it alone. And it was fun knowing those things. And, you know, through those program exchanges, it, in, in a way that was an Internet that, Myself and a, and a a small group of guys. I mean, there are guys out there like Tom Burke and Scott Teal and and you know some others that had the same type of program trade arrangements. But uh, I did a program, and I, I remember one time our our Marty O'Neill comes on TV and announces that we're sorry, fans, that Pepper Gomez has been put out of action. He'll be out indefinitely, injured by Lars Anderson. Well couple of days earlier I got programmed from San Francisco where Pe- Pepper Gomez is in the main event and you know yeah. you, you look and you look all it was so great 
So, uh, but that also earned the trust of the wrestlers. And I, I remember Nick Bockwinkel's 60th birthday party here in, he was still living in Minnesota when he turned 60. He had a birthday party at one of the local golf country clubs here in, in uh, St. Paul. And I get an invitation to attend his 60th birthday party. So my wife and I go, we get there, and there's a handful of wrestlers, Nick Bockwinkel's personal friends and, you know, compadres, people I don't know. And during the course of the evening, I thanked Nick. I said, Nick, thank you for inviting me to this. It was great. I feel honored. And he looked at me, and he said, you earned the right to be here. How do you overcome that? Mm-hmm. Well, when these guys, you know, like we discussed, uh, Mike and Bobby, and, you know, when these guys pass, uh, it's it's like a piece of your heart is being ripped out and a part of your life. Oh, yeah. because they've been, you know, I'm 67 years old, and I have been following wrestling since I was eight years old. So, Basically, 60 years of my life, my whole life. And the wrestling is more my life than my actual family. I mean, whenever life is tough on me through the years, I come home from work or I have a situation that's weighing on my shoulders. I go into my wrestling room and I work on some wrestling. I come out in the light and the world's back in the sink. People can't understand that type of a devotion and a commitment to a hobby. But it's basically an addiction that we never want to be cured from. And unless you unless you're with me on this and you get it, you 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 will never understand it. Um, well, exactly what you mean, Mike. He's brought up he's brought up the the uh, the age old question I've had, and he don't even know he did it. My, I still ask, has anybody ever seen Tom Drake and Lord Littlebrook in the same room together? <laughs> <laughs> That's my little running my little running gag with 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 him. Every time I see him, I go, Littlebrook, I didn't know you were here. I mean, hey, <laughs> what a what a neat you, guy you he is. Like, you know what Dave Von Raschke said when they asked him one time what he thought of midget wrestlers? Baron replied, very little. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, somebody, somebody oh. put on one of the one of the Facebook pages. Whatever became of midget wrestling? I said it's still around. Bill Dundee and, and Mike Jackson work somewhere every weekend. Well, I, I feel that way about, you know, somebody else you knew, Bill Bowman. Bill Bowman was like a second father to me. And uh, Bobby, oh, was, God, Bobby knew him a whole lot longer than I, I did. But, but you know, it was just, it was so hard for me because of me going through the health issues that I went through. And about the same time that Bill was, you know, was, was dealing with it that I wasn't able to see him. Um, yeah. You know. As often as I wanted to, and I t- I talked to him whenever I could, but um, but uh, that one that one was tough, you know. And, you know well, losing losing Kelly and Ken Lucas, that's that's the thing about you know they canceled the Gulf Coast reunion this year because there there's uh, you know 
a little bit of of an issue trying to have that building uh, for this past weekend. But, uh, you know, and I know there's guys that still go down there, but everybody that I knew that I grew up watching that I got to become friends with and got to work in the ring with, they're all gone. There's nobody there anymore that I even know other than the group here from Georgia. And I can see them here. So, you know. Well, and you know, Mike, when you mentioned Bill Bowman, Bill Bowman, um, you know, I only attended one Gulf Coast reunion. That was the one that you and I hooked up at in 2013. And I was there that the whole reason I ended up coming eventually to the Gulf Coast reunion was because of Bill Bowman. He begged me for about four years running, and I mean begged at Cauliflower Alley. He kept telling me, you have to come. You have to be there. You deserve to be there. And it was always my impression through the years that the Gulf Coast reunion was basically you had to be a wrestler or an ex-worker in the business. And so I never went. And finally he told me, you're coming. And uh, uh, Bob Kelly was the same way. He, he wanted me to come there. And I was so thankful that I made it that one year. And then, you know, now we've lost both of those guys. And they were great friends as well. Uh, But I I never got to see them each wrestle. I only knew them through CAC for all the years that I was attending there. But, again, and I was on the board with them, by the way, as well, because Bill was on the board. But, you know, when they they make more of your friend, I mean, there's there's just something special about that. Yeah. Well, we yeah, know I never got a chance to see Kelly wrestle either, but me and Kelly became very close uh, there, especially yeah. after Chris passed away and my wife passed away. He would, I mean, it was just, uh, Bob grieved himself to death. He just never got over it. Uh, he, uh, but, you know, he was, he was, uh, when uh, he had not been, he had not made a, just to show you what a friend he was, he had not made one trip. He had not left his house other than to go to the store or something since Chris had died. And when Debbie passed away, uh, I was standing in the church at the viewing, and I seen the back door open, and Bob Kelly came through. And he looked like death warmed over. It literally almost killed him to make that trip up here. He came by himself. And when I asked him, I said, why are you here? He said, I would have walked to have got here to you. And he stayed by my side for two days. Yeah. Isn't that something? I mean, those are things that you just you, you just never ever lose memory of. No. Speaking of speaking of your wife um, Debbie, you know, I had known her from the old WFIA convention right, back right. in back in the seventies because I know right. I asked you about that when we were at uh, the Gulf Coast reunion. Oh yeah, she I, told you know, me. She told me she says I knew all these people before you did. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the WFIA reunions, I mean, the original ones through the 70s, um, they were probably as close to what the, the CAC is today as anything. They were, they were total fan gatherings, but when you think of the uniqueness that they, were, they did, they went into a different territory every year. Right. And they, they would work with the local promotion to supply wrestlers, put on a wrestling card, or they did it in conjunction with a wrestling card. 
and the WFIA would do their awards, like they, you know, give the local champion the wrestler of the year and the tag team of the year and do those different things. And it was basically, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, our internet, because through the WFIA, you know, that's where I met so many people that today, 50, 60 years later, I'm still friends with guys like Tom Burke and Dave Brzezinski and Scott Teal and Dean Silverstone and, and, you know, all these people that we stayed in contact and it was a great network and the wrestlers that would be there on the various cards, they would cooperate with the fans and you got with them, but that was a unique deal while it lasted because they went to a different territory every year. Yep. Yeah, Danny Goddard's sister Vicky is actually who introduced me to Debbie. Yep, and both she was of leaving. Those. She was leaving, going to Treveca, and uh, to uh-huh. go to school. And uh, she introduced me to Debbie because Debbie took over her her uh, her program selling duties at some of the spot shows, and uh, and uh, that's that's how we met. That's where I met uh, Darla Staggs back in the day, and I met. Well, I met, I met Darla. Darla reached out. Michael seen her posting. She was looking for Debbie, and Michael oh. called me. And then we, you know, Debbie. He asked Debbie about it. And Debbie said sure, and that's how they they hooked back together. And that's how I met Darla. Uh huh. So I mean, the fan network has been a really blessing too. You know, I had an opportunity in nineteen. In fact, it was uh, fifty years ago this past November. I had the opportunity to meet Jim Melvey and Jim and I lived in the same city. We just never knew each other. We'd have been attending matches. We never, we hooked up, but we became lifelong friends. And of course we'd go to cards together, the matches together. We traveled to ball games together. We went to, uh, you know, go out looking for old records together. I mean, we had just a ton of fun and we, we went to many WFIA reunions together. So friendships outside the ring, too, are something that the business gave us that I think today's fans will have the same thing to talk about 50 or 60 years from now about today's product. Yeah. I just no. can't keep that. No, it won't last. Yeah. Well, not that, but I mean, there's no way that you, I wouldn't think that that they would get to know guys, especially, you know, name guys. I mean, sure, they might. you might know the butcher at Kroger, your local Kroger, that wrestles you know one saturday a month or something like that but yeah. as far as knowing anybody that is a is anybody in the business now you know there's no way that they're going to be interacting with the fans a way that that are, are you know guys like you and and uh, you know bobby grew up and got into the business uh through you know uh charlie harvin and rocket monroe and knowing those guys bill dromo that, that became you know mm-hmm like family to him and it's just it's just a different world totally well yeah. something somebody said to me a while back and i don't even remember who said it but it made a lot of sense to me and and when we when we get into these conversations it generally always starts with i started out as a fan we at some yep. point at some point in our life we had a certain amount of of, of believability in what we were watching whether we figured it out on our own, somebody smartened us up, uh, we stumbled across it. At some point, we were willing to dole the money out to buy a ticket to go watch it because we believed in what we were watching. 
And and the problem you got today is the the kids that are coming along today, they've never believed it to be real. They've, it's always been a, a show to them. It's always been a work. It's always been you know sports entertainment, and and they didn't have what we had. Because I said this the other day to somebody, if I could go back in time, if I had a time capsule or a time machine that I could go back for a week or ten days, I would go back to before I knew what was going on, and I'd be at that auditorium on Friday night in Atlanta. I'd, I'd be I joining just you. couldn't wait. Yep. I've often said if I could have a time machine, I'd go back. And I'd I'd relive all those cards. I'd I'd travel all over the country. I would enjoy it. Yep. I really would. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember you know if you watch t- today's wrestling, if you notice in the crowd, the fans are always holding up big big posters and banners, and you know you oh, can yeah. hardly see the fans. Well, I've got an interesting story. In nine, you know, this really says how it's changed. In 1968, in July. Uh, Mad Dog and Butcher Vashon were going to wrestle in the main event on one of our Minneapolis cards against the Crusher and the Bruiser. Now, this particular night happened to be the very first time that Butcher Vashon was teaming with Mad Dog in the AWA. So I was totally, and of course in 68, I'm, what, 17 years old? 16, 17, I don't know. Um, I went out and I bought a piece of poster board and I made a sign that had Mad Dog and Butcher versus Crusher and Bruiser and I colored it all in and you know I took it with me to the to the wrestling card. When I got to the auditorium, the ushers they asked me what I had in my hand. I showed it to them and they said you can't take that into the arena. You're gonna block people's views. I said, well, I'm not going to do anything. No, you can't take it into the auditorium. And they took it from me. And I remember I was so frustrated. I thought, well, that's not fair. You know, but I got over it. I mean, but there's yeah. a difference between then and today. Today they hand people posters when they walk into the arena. <laughs> you know. Charge them, probably I mean, charge them. Well, it hides, it hides the fans from sitting on their hands when the matches are going on. Right. Because you hear all this crowd reaction, but you look at the crowd and they're not doing anything. That's they're just exactly sitting there. Right. I mean, it's... Yep, so if we can get them to hold up a poster, it at least looks lively. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> oh. I we, we just live... Do what? And you know what? I said... I, I'm sorry. Go ahead, George. Well, I was going to say, you know, as far as the real or fake or anything like that... Um, I said in my wrestling book, um, I said, you know, I told the Nick Kozak story about those who believe and those who don't, which we talked about a little bit ago. But I added one little thing to it that I have always personally said. My, My story in the book was, is wrestling fake? Is it real? Or is it something else? And I gave the Nick Kozak story, among other things. And then I added this. I said, wrestling is a lot like Santa Claus. It's more fun when you believe. Yes. And if you think about that, you know, from a little kid's perspective, Santa Claus is something that is so magical. And once you grow up and you learn there's no Santa, 
Christmas is never quite the same again until you eventually have your own children or you have grandchildren, and then you get to revisit that right. magic that they see. Right. And that was the way I always defined pro wrestling in the kayfabe era, that it really was a lot like Santa. It was more fun if you believed. That's a good analogy. That's very good. I just, yeah. I just... I can just remember, God, I couldn't wait for Friday night. It was just, it's, I'm sitting here thinking back in my mind, and, uh, you know, I, I just couldn't wait for Friday nights, you know, to get there. And, and you just, it was, uh, you know, whether you were a John, you know, if you were a John Wayne fan and the new John Wayne movie came out and you would go see it, that was great and it was good and it was entertaining. But if but if, you're, if your hero or your, your, your big guy that you liked was, was Mr. Wrestling or it was it was Butcher Vachon or whoever it was, not only could you go see them, you could touch them if you actually got close enough and had enough nerve. Right. You know, right. they were there. It was just... Well, and I, and I was in the era, too, when, when you could still go up to the ring when the wrestlers would come into the ring, especially the baby faces. Yep, get autographs, <laughs> and, yeah. They, they mm-hmm. would be signing autographs real quick. And so I have, you know, several of my programs where I'd hand them the program real quick, and I was still a kid, and they'd scribble their name on it. But, you know, you can't do that today, and you can't even get close to the ring today, and yet the business is exposed. It's a really different product. Um, And like I said, I don't really pay attention to it. But I I don't knock anyone who does watch it because it's their world, it's their time, it's their, their, you know, their sport, so to say. My grandson loves it. My yep. grandson loves it, but it's all he knows. It's all he knows. Right. I'm sitting here. Uh, I've got Roku, and I've got Jerry Jarrett and uh, a guy by the name of Parsons has put together a streaming channel where they show old stuff from various different territories. And I'm looking at the Atlantic Grand Prix wrestling, which was wrestling based in the Maritimes, and I don't know if this was the Cormiers were running it at this point or not, but the this is this program is probably from late eighty two, early eighty three. But the opening, you know how they every territory, every show had an opening of different matches, you know, flashing with the name and all this stuff. The matches for this 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 uh program in Canada I'm looking at uh, wrestling number two, and it looks like Jack Poor is, is the guy he's wrestling, with Nick Patrick as a referee, and filmed in the TBS studios. Uh, okay. Tommy Rich is wrestling uh, Bill Irwin, uh, and Michael Hayes is on there. You know, how did, did Barnett, I wonder if Barnett knew that they were, were well, number one, how did they get hold of the Who footage knows? to even edit it into their stuff? Who knows? You asked the question, did Barnett know? My, 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 off the top of my head would be no. He was very protective of that product. That's what I was thinking. And everybody wanted a piece of it because of the TV, the power of that TV. Well, and, and you know. These are all, it's just the, the opening, of, though. You know, they got, they feature their own guys once they go into the show. Yeah, yeah. But the opening, they have they have Georgia Championship Wrestling matches. 
the power of the weekly television program back in that in that kayfabe era and how everyone would be glued to TV to watch what they were going to do. And, you know, you, usually we had the established stars in against the enhancement talent. <clears throat> but every once in a while you'd get that that feud that was – or that special match that would set up some sort of program between – uh, wrestlers, and it was really nice to watch how they they progressed on their their angles and their storylines. That everything led one thing to the other. Um, I remember the time since we talked about Doctor X. A year after he was here, so this would have been August of '68. He finally got a chance to wrestle Vern Gagne for the title, and Vern let Doc win the title for two weeks. And it was basically just to build up a rematch two weeks later. So on the night of the rematch, two weeks later, on television, they have Dr. X wrestling. And that night, he's going to defend his title to Vern Gagne at the auditorium. So you're watching the show. They introduce Dr. X. And then very innocently, with no fanfare, no, no hoopla or anything, they announced his opponent on TV. And all they said was, from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, 238 pounds, Billy Red Lions. I just about fell out of my chair because I knew the story on Billy Red Lions. Now, not everybody did, but that night on TV, they made a big deal of it because Billy Red, in his debut match, beat Dr. X, who just happened to be the champion that night, and he beat him with his own finishing hold, the figure four leg lock. So the Dick Byer Billy Lyons program was back in play because they'd played this all over in other territories as the Destroyer and Billy Red. And Doc is livid, he's upset. So he goes into the auditorium that night. He does lose the title back to Vern, but his immediate excuse is they threw a ringer at me, got me all flustered. I want a match with this Lions, and they got a ready-made program. And, of course, Billy's over like hotcakes because he'd, you know, beaten the number one heel in the territory. And that's how they built him up. That stuff doesn't happen today. No. Where it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Because now his program was done with Vern. Now he's on to Billy Red. It's great it's great stuff. Utah you talking about St. Louis. I was watching a, a clip on YouTube today of a match. It had to have been late seventy three, early seventy four because Briscoe's in it and he's still wearing the red strap and they changed sometimes and said black. But it's him and uh Black Angus Campbell against uh, Dr. Big Bill Miller and Harley Race, a television uh-huh. in St. Louis. And it was a two out of three. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, um, I'm trying to think. Jack actually lost the last, the final fall. I, thought, I, think, I don't know if he lost it by disqualification or something. But I'm looking at big uh, at Bill Miller. Now Bill Miller, and this was you know in that time frame, had probably been in the business probably 20 years or better, and he's yep. still flying over the top rope, and you know hitting the floor and all this. I'm like, man, 
<laughs> he was amazing. And, and other than the, the unknown factor in that was, was Black Angus. I mean, you know, he, uh, Frank Hoy was his real name. He was from, from Scotland, but he, um, you know, his basic thing, whether he worked baby face or heel, cause he worked either way was basically doing a strong, you know, the strong man type stuff. He was like, have you ever seen him, Bobby? Or seen pictures of him. I, just I imagine, him. just imagine Big Bad John, except worked a little bit better. That's about what he was like. That ain't said a whole but, lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just, you know, you take three guys like that, and he, he, that's just something you never saw. But St. Louis always used it. Wrestling at the uh, what was the name of that hotel? The Chase. The Chase to set up something for the Saturday night card there the next night. So they were probably having a match between Jack and and Harley, and so Harley slipped over on him on the television. Yeah. So you know, it's just you know simple stuff like that that you know it's it's just too convoluted now. It's just absolutely too convoluted. Before we, I know well, we're getting – I was going to say I want to tell George's story. He may have heard it. I don't know if he did or not, but I know Mike's heard it. But when Larry Larry Hittig was in Florida, Harley was booking. This must have been 70, 75, 76. Mm-hmm. Harley was booking down there. Well, they would send guys from Atlanta to go down to do Tampa TV on Thursdays. And uh, this particular Thursday, they couldn't find anybody to go. I sat in the office doing nothing. They said, you got your wrestling stuff? I said, yeah. They said, go get on a plane and go to Tampa. So I get to Tampa, and I walk in, and, of course, I'm referee. Harley goes, what are you doing here? And I said, they sent me down here. They couldn't find anybody. And I said, uh, you know, they wanted me to come down here. So they, they've got me booked with Henning on, on Tampa TV. Now I weighed about 220, and in, and in 1975, I was 20 years old. I was still very much in awe of these guys. And here is Hennig sitting over in a corner that looks like Goliath. I mean, he's huge, you know. And I'm looking at him, and he's got this huge black eye. I mean, it's, it, it was awful. So I'm looking, and I've asked Carly. I said, Harley, I said, where'd the black eye come from? Well, everybody in the dressing room just bust out laughing. And the story was, <laughs> now, now, mind you, I had not seen Larry in, in 20-something years until I ran into him at Cauliflower Alley, and I reminded him of this, and he re- he didn't remember me, which I don't understand why he didn't remember that classic match, but he remembered the <laughs> incident. But anyway, the night before, they had been somewhere, and a mark jumped in the ring on Harley. And Larry was sitting in a chair, and he had a towel, and in the towel, he had a hockey puck. And he was yeah. playing with a hockey puck. And he said, for whatever reason, when the guy jumped in the ring and he jumped up to go help Harley... He said the first thing he thought of was, I'm going to leave this hockey puck in this towel, and I'm going to jump in the ring and hit the guy with a towel, and when he goes sailing, they'll just think I'm super strong that I beat this guy with a towel. So when he jumped in the ring and he went to hit the guy with a towel, it worked like a reverse slingshot, and the hockey puck came out of the towel and hit him right in the eye. And that's how he got the black eye. And I'm thinking... I really want to be in the ring with this guy after he's ticked off. He's hit himself with a hockey puck, and uh, you know, man, he picked, he picked me. He picked me up like I was a rag doll. Larry Hennig was one of those guys that was 
legit tough. I, oh. You really would not be smart to have, to have uh, ticked him off. I tell you that. I remember he told me we were we were you know he says he says you know he said my finish is is the axe. He explained that you know he said now he said we're going to use it. He said now if you put it over and you do it properly, he said that's great. He said, if you don't, he said, I'll do it a second time. He said, the next time you won't have any problem putting it over. I said, I, I, said, I understand fine. <laughs> oh, that's right. Larry oh. Hennig and Billy Robinson got into a little uh, legit push and shove one time. And, uh, you know, Billy Robinson, if you guys like him, you know, he was the real deal. I mean, Billy could break your finger off and hand it to you within a nanosecond. Uh, Larry and him got into a little push and shove, and Larry Larry pretty much put him in his place. And, I mean, they just had a uh, misunderstanding, but Larry, Larry was the real deal. Yeah, there's a famous picture of him early in his career, probably when he was still a baby face of him holding a uh, jet, a, a snow ski up over his head, and that wasn't yeah, work. Snowmobile, <laughs> yeah. Actually, that story, the snowmobile over his head, that was part of the deal where for several years running, Larry Hennig would participate in the annual uh, St. Paul Winter Carnival. They always have a, they had a snowmobile race from Winnipeg, Canada, down to St. Paul. Larry was huge into snowmobiling. And the one particular year, that was when Larry and Lars Anderson were teaming, they had entered the snowmobile race, and they were coming from Winnipeg to St. Paul, and Larry had lost control of his snowmobile and went through a chicken coop at a <laughs> farmer's yard. And the story hit the newspapers that Larry Hennig was now king of the coop. But that was part of that story where he lifted the snowmobile, and that was a legit feat of strength that he did. He picked it up and put it over his head. Gee. And, I mean, I don't know if you guys – I cannot imagine some poor guys having to work, you know, TV enhancement against him and Joe LaDuke. I I wrestled Joe LaDuke, the strongest man I've ever been in the ring with. Absolutely, without a doubt. And I can imagine yeah, those two together. They were a very, very interesting tag team. Uh, very strong tag team. Legit strong. Put Larry over really big as a baby face at that point because that wasn't too long after turned baby that they had him home with Duke. Mm. So Larry Hennig was Roddy Piper's very first opponent when uh, Roddy broke into the business. And uh, Larry, I think he beat him within like 17 seconds or something. Hmm. Well, we are getting down to the wire. Bobby's uh, Bobby's final bell just went off, but uh, my clock my clock is leaping. It's five minutes fast. <laughs> but uh, you were talking about 17 seconds. I worked. I was in, in Augusta one night. I took the cage to Augusta, Georgia, and I wasn't wasn't working. I just took the cage down, was going to set it up for the main event, and then come home. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, somebody didn't show up. So Tom Ernesto was booking, and he goes, you got your stuff? And I said, yeah. He said, go get your stuff. I want you to work the first match. You're going to work with Ronnie Garvin. I said, okay. 
So we go back in the little room there, and he goes, here's what I want you to do. He said, as soon as the, uh, the instructions are given, the bell's going to ring. He's going to gut shot you, suplex you, and pin you. It took me longer to walk to the ring and take my jacket off than it did to get beat. So I had not seen Ronnie in a long, long time until the Gulf Coast reunion, and I asked him. He said, man, he said, me and you worked together a lot. He said, you were a good referee. I said, I appreciate it. I said, do you remember wrestling me? And he goes, no. And I told him the story, and I said, you know, my feelings are really hurt that that one wasn't, and, you know, you don't have that kind of in the annals of your mind as one of your greatest matches. <laughs> you know, I just. Well, I mentioned at the top of the program that George is an author, and he's mentioned a couple of times. George's book uh, is Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors, and I highly, highly recommend it. I've had my copy now for several years, and I managed to save it from fire to where I lost everything else. But uh, I highly recommend oh, no. it. Have you got anything else in the works that you're, you've done since that book or are planning on doing? Well, I have I have come out with uh, three AWA record books, which is basically a chronolo- chronological account of all the matches in all the cities with the results with several trivia um, notes and pictures and tidbits, that sort of thing. Um, I've got the 60s done. The 70s is two books, broken in two books. I'm working on the 80s, which will then complete the the AWA run. And I, uh, I've i got another book that's finished, but right now it's kind of in limbo with the publisher until a few things are worked out. So I'm not going to say any more about it than that. But the... Uh, Minnesota's Golden Age book is basically a story of the Minneapolis wrestling office, and it's got Minnesota in the title on the book simply because the Minnesota Historical Society published the book, and they wanted Minnesota in the title. But it is the AWA and then even earlier the NWA story for Minneapolis, and uh, which all the wrestlers and they say they work for me. I appreciate that, Mike. That's that, that's nice that you say that. Thank you. Well, tell people tell people where they can go online or where they can get it at. The best thing to do is you can order it or you can uh, get it at any Barnes and Noble. But the best place is go to Amazon.com. Okay, there and, you go. Uh, Amazon, if you know you work it out, you get free shipping, and it's uh, you know probably cost you twenty one bucks or something. So. George, we appreciate having you on with us. Um, We're down to about five seconds here, so we're about to, as Marty O'Neill would say, we've run out of time, as Gordon Soley would say. Uh, But uh, we'll definitely have to have you on with us again, and next time we won't wait till somebody dies to do it. So you've got a home here. So anytime you want to, you got something to plug or you want to talk about or just just want to join us, let me know, and we'll. This is this has been great. I, I just I hate Jerry wasn't here with us tonight, but I need to check on him. So uh, I'll give him a call tomorrow and find out what's going on with him. But uh, again, I appreciate you being on with us, and, and and you and I could probably spend an afternoon talking on the phone just over just junk. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Love you both, guys. It's great talking with you. All right, I, you I, too, I, George. Take care, my friends. All, All right. right, see you later. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. And we'll get together sometime next month, and we'll do this one more time, Bobby. Uh, all right. Well, I guess we'll, what, shoot for the first Thursday? 
Something like that, yeah, because nothing else is going on the first that first weekend. That's what we'll go for. Yep, I'll be back. I'll be back from. Uh, I will be back from. No, the first Thursday's like the first or the second. We'll have to do it the second one because I won't be back yeah. until the third or fourth. So, okay. Anyway, right. we'll get we'll, we'll, we'll do it at some point. All right. All right. All right. Man. Good night, See everybody. You later. Have a good night. All right. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.